Okay, so we've done A through H. Now we're on to the I's. Let's get into the I's. Okay, so what's an immediate annuity? So an immediate annuity is instead of having a deferred one where you put money into the annuity and it grows tax deferred and then you take it out, an immediate annuity is you dump the money in and then you take it out right away. You can only do an immediate annuity if you do a lump sum contribution. You cannot do it if you do an extended one. Okay, so if you do if you do a contract plan where you're paying in for 15 years, you can't start taking the money out until you're done putting it in. Always remember with all these plans, other than like mutual funds, you can do it. You can put money in and take it out. Um, with the retirement plans and stuff like this, you can't put money in and take it out at the same time. So that's an immediate annuity where you're putting a lump sum in and you're getting paid out for life. So even if you're 25 or 30 or 59 and a half or 60, you're going to start getting paid out from the day you put it in, you start getting paid out. Immediate or cancel. What's an immediate immediate or cancel order? That's basically saying, hey, I want to buy the stock at this price and place a, a limit order, but I want to buy as much as I can right now and cancel it. So if I, if I give you an order to buy a thousand shares at 42 IOC, immediate or cancel, that means you're going to buy as much as you can. So if you buy 600 shares, you cancel the four and I accept it. If you can buy the whole thousand, awesome. But I want you to buy as much as you can right now and cancel the rest. Unlike a filler kill, which is similar, and we've already talked about it, a filler kill order is I give you a thousand to buy at forty-two filler kill. You either buy the entire thousand and then and then cancel it. Obviously, you're done, or you don't buy a share. You either buy the entire thing or none. That's fill it or kill it. Okay, so if you don't complete your CE, your continuing ed, you you go into what they call inactive status. And that means you can't do business, you can't do anything, you can't collect commissions or anything. You can collect commissions for stuff you did before you went inactive, but now once you're inactive, you can't. And it's really hard to become inactive now because it's a yearly thing and you have a whole year to do it and you just log on and do it. You don't have to, you used to have to go all the way down to the Prometric Center, go there and make an appointment. Now you just do it from your home. As long as you don't cheat, you're good. Okay, income bonds and income funds. Okay, remember an income bond is bad and an income fund is good. So income funds are good, income bonds are bad. I keep saying that wrong, right? So now, let's go on to this. An income bond is like an adjustment bond. A company goes is going bankrupt, they decide to restructure, and all the people who own bonds before, they're told, hey, you have a choice. Either they go bankrupt or you agree to this adjustment. So the adjustment here is that they say, okay, we have a coupon, then it is what it is, but we can't afford it. So we're going to adjust it and say, we'll still pay the same coupon or higher maybe, but we're only going to pay if we're only going to pay it if we hit a certain income threshold, like earnings per share, some sort of threshold that they said that we can afford it. And the reason they do that is, is that if you're trying to get back on your feet, sometimes having to make that monthly payment every six months is tough, right? So they can't do it. So listen, let's get so, so every time you get, you know, two steps forward, you can take a step and a half back. You're not really moving forward so much. So the whole point is an income bond is saying, hey, we want to um, readjust our structure so that we will only pay that income payment when we are making enough money to afford it. Now, great, that's awesome, but it also is a company that was basically bankrupt. So it's very risky. It's never really suitable for anyone. They have to, it almost has to be an unsolicited basis or a hedge fund or somebody's looking for crazy risk. Yeah, because if it works, you can make a lot of money because the bond is now trading at a deep discount. So if it starts paying, it's going to go up in price. So there's a lot of upside, but there's a hell of a lot of risk. Okay, an income bond is that. An income fund 
is a fund, a mutual fund that's supposed working on pre creating income, generating income, whether that's interest payments or dividend payments or something like that. That's what they're looking for. It's not just bonds. It's not just preferreds. An income fund is trying to create income through dividends and interest payments. I think we talked about it before. An income statement is basically all the money that's going in and out. Okay, there's a balance sheet, which is assets and liabilities. An income statement but is more about the money going in and out, the income we're generating. An income stock is like a utility stock or like a like a value stock that's paying a high dividend. That's all it is, just paying income. It's a stock. There's no guarantee. Dividends are not guaranteed. But an income stock is something like maybe a defensive stock or a value stock or utility that is very well known for paying dividends. Okay, what's an indenture? Okay, the indenture is basically, you're going to be said basically, I apologize. I'll try to edit it out, but it's not going to work. Basically, we have to deal with this. So an indenture, try not to say it is an agreement between the issuer and the trustee. The trustee on a corporate bond, um, they have to do an indenture. I guess they can do it in any bond, but they have to do it on corporate bonds. Where it's an agreement between the issuer listing on what they can and can't do and the trustee whose job it is to protect the investor. So if we violate any of that, the trustee will come at us and sue us, meaning the issuer, not the customers, because the customers are being protected. What is an index? It's a it's an, it's a benchmark of a group of securities at the S&P 500, the Dow 30, it's all industrials, the Russell 2000, it's all the um, small cap stocks. You have the Wilshire 5000, which is like a shitload of stocks at the whole market. The whole point of an index that represents what the stocks are doing on a given and at any given moment. An index fund is a fund that kind of replicates the, the, um, the performance of a specific index. So you buy an index fund, it's passively managed, it's not actively, they're not trying to beat the index, they're trying to benchmark it and match it, okay? There, there's a little lower fees, they have ETFs that do it, they have um, index funds, index mutual funds, all these things are there. But an index mutual fund might be a little more active, some fees, but a straight up index fund, okay, or an index ETF would have very low fees because you're not actively trying to beat the index, you're just trying to match it. Now, nobody ever can. So what happens is some of these index funds, not the ETFs, the index funds maybe take on a little more, more risk to make up for what they call tracking error. Tracking error is that if we're trying to track an index, we're not always going to nail it because the index is just a bunch of numbers. We actually have to buy the securities. We have margin costs. We have commissions. We have salaries. We have expenses. So that's going to reduce our return. So they will actually take on a little bit more risk to bump up what they make to reduce that tracking error. And indexing is when you try to match it, okay? So basically where you're an investment approach where you're trying to match the index. You're not trying to beat it, you're trying to match it. Very passive, very low cost, all that stuff. They all kind of go together. What's an index option? An index option is an option like an SCB 500, the SPIs, whatever it is, where you're buying calls or puts based on the index moving. So if you buy a SPI, an S&P, if you buy an S&P call, okay? You're, buy, you're betting the index will rise, and what you'll do is you'll make money, you'll get cash when you if you exercise it. If the index goes above your strike price and you exercise it, you'll get that money in cash. So you're actually betting on the index going up or down. So like if you have a big portfolio, you might buy S&P puts to offset that, okay? You'll buy, buy S&P puts to offset um, your risk, okay? Because you have a portfolio matches the index, so it goes up and down with the index. So you buy puts so that even if the index, the market drops, you're going to make money on the put to offset what you lose on the on the mutual fund or on your portfolio that matches the index. Um, again, you're buying. If you're bullish, you buy index calls. If you're bearish, 
you buy index puts and you and when you exercise you will make the in the money amount you don't get the stocks in the index you get the in the money amount the amount in the money that's what you get paid an indication of interest is usually during the cooling off period. So the cooling off period is when, when you file the S1, when you're registering a shares for the first time to be sold to the to the to public. That 20-day cooling off period, you can't take any orders, but you can take an indication of interest. Okay. So an indication of interest is just saying, hey, I'd be willing to buy 5,000 shares or whatever it is. It's not binding on anyone, on either the broker dealer, underwriter, or the customer. If you come out and say, I want to buy a bunch of shares, and then later they go, hey, we can allocate 5,000 to you, you can say, no, I only want 100. I can't afford it. It's not binding at all. Okay. What are the indicators? So I always think of leading, lagging, and coincident. So don't worry about naming all of them, listing them all. It's more about understanding what they're about. So the leading indicator is telling us where we're going in the future. Coincident is where we are right now. And lagging, it tells us where we were. Again, I don't want to use examples, but I'm going to do anyway because I'm a flake. The S&P 500 is a leading indicator. Like think about during the pandemic, the market was skyrocketing in the summer of 2020. The summer of 2020 sounds like a song, but in the summer of 2020, the market was skyrocketing despite fucking horrible shit going on. So it was like, why is it going up when the world is ending? Because it wasn't thinking about now. It was thinking about six months later or a year later. So that's a leading indicator. So it's telling us where we think we're going. Coincident is just explaining where we are now. And lagging is telling us where we were. Like corporate profits are a great lagging indicator. Because you report the corporate profits at the end of the year and tells you how the year went. Okay, so individual account versus joint account, right? So an individual account is like your account, your own account, what you have. Like mine just is being obliterated because I just can't trade for shit. But that's my account. It's my thing. Nobody else has control of it. So if I call up a broker and say, watch my account for me, and then I disappear, they can't do anything unless I gave them power of attorney. Now, a joint account is when it's more than one person. It could be more, uh, it could be three, four, five people. Joint with rights to survivorship is multiple people and if one person dies the rest of the money the shit in the account goes to the other people then there's joint tenants in common where it goes down to their family or their beneficiaries so you and i have an account we have joint tenants in common i die my money goes to my people you if it's if you die your money goes to your people there you go and that doesn't avoid probate where the rights of survivorship does so really the difference between the two joints despite this being an individual account question but whatever the two joint accounts, um, the difference between the two is where the money goes when you die. Tenants in common goes down, right to survivorship goes across. What's an individual retirement account? That's an IRA. That is an account that you set up that is a retirement account for you. So if it's a traditional, it goes in pre-tax. If it's um, a Roth, it goes in after-tax. There's other ways where a regular IRA would go in after-tax too, but not on this video. Um it goes in, you set it up, you contribute yourself. The most you can put in is, depending on the year, since it's 2023, you can put in 6,500 a year of earned income. It has to be earned. You can't be a trust fund baby and do this, okay? Trust the foreign. Um, <clears throat> And if you're old like me, 50 or older, you can put in an extra 1,000. You, you can't take the shit out before you're 59 and a half. And on a regular IRA, you have to take it up by the time you're 73 now, not 72. And a Roth, there's none of that because here's the great thing about a Roth. You put the money in after tax, which means you pay taxes on it, it grows tax deferred. If you hold it long enough, over five years, and you take it out in a qualified way, like for a good reason or 59 and a half, then you don't pay taxes on any of it. And so there's no RMD either 
Because they don't give a shit when you take it out because they can't tax you. Like the reason they make you start taking the money out of an IRA is because they want to tax you finally. That money's been sitting in a tax deferred account for 40, 50 years. They want to tax it. So they make you take it out. Industrial development bond. It's basically, see, there's that word again. It's basically when a, just said it twice, even though I made fun of myself. When a municipality buys property and leases it out to a corporation, they issue the bond to buy the property, then they build it up or just lease it out to a corporation. And you, and sometimes through the legal opinion, they decide that the corporation, the credit rating of the corporation is what the bond is based on, not the municipality. Inflation, purchase power risk. They kind of go to there. Inflation, we're dealing about in 22, 23. Usually it's around two or 3% a year. It's the rise in prices of goods, not bonds, not stocks. Rising prices of goods. So the fact that you can measure through the CPI, Consumer Price Index, you can measure inflation through the CPI, and that's saying every time all prices are going up. That's why sometimes if you have a union job or something like that, every year you get a little 2 or 3% raise, cost of living adjustment, COLA, I guess you can call it, right? Where they're adjusting you to the high rising price of goods. So like if I made you know 30 grand a year in 1990, that's like you know sixty five grand a year now or something like that. So that's it because that's how much I would have to make to buy the same amount of stuff as I paid for it, that I could. So if I made twenty five grand a year in nineteen ninety, I don't know the numbers to buy the same amount of stuff. I'd have to make sixty or seventy grand a year now. So inflation is a rising price of goods, and the best inflation, the best hedge against inflation is either gold or precious metals or common stock. Yeah, and inflation risk is when you buy bonds and shit like that. And you just, anytime you have to buy something that's fixed income that you're getting the same amount of money every single time, you have inflation risk because you're getting the same money, but everything is costing more. Okay, what's an information barrier, also known as a Chinese wall? Maybe it should be in the sea. Maybe it should be here. Okay, information barrier is like when they put up barriers, not physical, but like electronic, or they could put walls up. Like, like I have some buildings. When I worked at some firms that were big, you had to use a key card to get into various ones. And if you didn't have the right key card, you couldn't get in there. So that's an information barrier. It's to protect inside information flowing back and forth. And it also helps with like market makers versus retail versus institutional. They get orders from their customers and that should not impact how others um, react to the orders. Like, so if I'm a retail customer and I give you an order to buy, you know, a thousand shares of IBM. Well, technically, once you get that order, you can't buy, you as a customer, broker dealer, can't buy it in front of me. But in another department that has good information barriers up, they can because they don't know about my order. That's a not, an, a, what do you call it? Not know. You, you don't know about it. So you don't have to worry about it. Um, It also protects the spread of inside information. Most of the time, it's about putting the difference between like underwriting or investment banking and research and trading because all of them could, they could use some of that information to uh, trade on it and you don't want that. Like it used to be, research used to be under the investment banking arm. And what happened was you go to, say you're an investment banker and you go to a Coca-Cola or Home Depot and say, hey, I want to do some of your investment banking business. And they go, well, that's great, but your firm just gave me a sell rating or a neutral rating in research. So that'd be embarrassing. So the investment bankers went back and yelled at the research people and told them to give them a buy rating. And that's not good because I'm not real. So they have to be separated. So the investment banker has to go in there and whatever the rating is, they can't control it. They actually put in rules that investment banking, unless it's a really, really small firm, investment banking cannot be in charge of research or their hiring, firing, or even compensation. That's keeping a wall between them, the Chinese wall between them to make sure that um, they don't interact too much. And actually some of the firms, 
I think my daughter was at a firm where she had a friend in another department and she tried to look him up and the email doesn't even show up. Like you can't even email them. If you want to talk to someone over the wall, through on the other side of the wall, you have to bring in like a compliance officer to sit in or to monitor the conversation. Make sure you're not trading secrets. What's an IPO? An initial public offering. Okay. So an IPO is the first time issuance of stock. First time going public and IPO. And remember, if since you're working in Wall Street, if you're watching this, you can't buy on that. You can buy in the market. You can buy an additional offering. You can buy a follow-on. But you cannot buy part of the deal of an equity IPO. Again, an IPO is the initial time. It's a primary offering. The primaries can be follow-ons where second, third, fourth, fifth time you offer shares to add more shares. But the first time is always an IPO. Okay, the inside market. Okay. Inside market is the highest bid and the lowest ask, right? So you have to determine where we are. So, okay. So this is just a quote for Cisco. It doesn't matter. Um, just remember, if you want to see the website, go to QuantShare just so I don't get in trouble. So the inside market is the highest bid, okay? So level one shows the bid and the ask, the highest bid and the lowest ask, okay? So these are the people willing to buy. This is where people want to buy the stock. This is the highest price anyone is willing to buy. And that's the inside market. That's the buy. That's the bid. Or they call it the NBBO sometimes. National Best Bid, Best Offer. And here's the offer. This is the lowest price anyone's willing to sell it at. There are people behind it, right? So look, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Lehman, how old this is. But these are all bidders below it. They're not on the inside because they're not the best bid. And here, these are all offers. They put colors in there to make it so much easier for us. So we don't even look at the colors we don't want. We can set our own colors. But now these offers are higher then what's the best? So this is the lowest price anyone's willing to sell. And this is the highest price anyone's willing to buy. So if you want to buy shares, you have to pay the ask. You have to buy where people are willing to sell. And if you want to sell shares, you have to sell it where people are willing to buy. So the bid ask is the inside market, the highest bid, the lowest ask. So this would be 2630 by 2631. That's the inside market. They would also probably put size. They would add these up and then add these up and come up with a number. But that's the inside market. So what is inside of insider and insider formation? So insider is someone basically is more than more, not 10%, more than 10% or any partner officer director. So I say partner officer director, I call it the pods, PODs, or more than 10%, or anyone who has it who is in possession of inside information. What the hell is inside information? Inside information is material non-public information. Basically. Material information, that's important, that you can make a decision on, that would matter, and it's non-public, that means it's not been publicized yet. You cannot, you can have that information, but you can't use it, you can't trade on it, because that's called insider trading. So here's the thing, so being in possession of inside information is not a crime, okay? Being in possession of inside information is not a crime, and what you should do is tell your supervisor or your principal so they can tell you how to handle it. But you can't use that to make decisions. You can't tell people if somebody wants to buy something and you know it's going to be bad, you can't wink, wink. You cannot do anything. If somebody wants, if you're in possession of inside information that tomorrow this company is going to declare bankruptcy and little grandma walks in and wants to buy a bunch of shares, you can't go, oh, grandma, don't do it, wink, wink. You have to let them do it. Unless there's a real reason, a real good reason to not, but you don't do it. You can't solicit orders. You can take unsolicited only. So again, inside information is possession of material non-public information that may just say MNPI, okay? Now, as an insider, you may always have that, but you're a 10%, more than 10% or a pod, partner, officer, director. 
And somebody used an acronym PODS, P-O-D-S, partners, officers, directors, and S for shareholders over 10%. Or if you are in possession, even temp, you can be a temporary insider where you're in possession of insider information. They also added the rules a little bit that it used to be just you would get in trouble, but now everyone in the chain gets in trouble. So if I'm in possession of insider information and I tell you, and then you tell your sister, and then your sister acts on it, just to act on it to be a problem, then all of us are in trouble, unless I can prove that you knew you weren't supposed to say anything. Okay. Institution of communication. Let's talk about all three. So communications, there's retail, correspondence, and institutional. Correspondence is you're, you're sending information to 25 or less retail clients or people in a 30-day period. If you send it to, and it doesn't need to be pre-approved, it's reviewed. If you send it to more than 25 individuals in a 30-day period, it becomes retail, and it needs to be pre-approved by a principal of the firm and possibly sent to FINRA if it's a mutual fund or um, DBP or CMO or option. If it's institutional, you're sending it to institutions. It doesn't matter how many institutions. Like if I work for a broker-dealer and you send it to me and my capacity as a representative of the broker-dealer, that's institutional, does not need to be pre-approved. We have to review it. That's all. So the principal will review both correspondence and institutional. So if I say we send 20 things to 20 people, and then I also send it to 20 institutions, it's considered correspondence, and it just needs to be pre-reviewed, not pre-approved. So an institutional investor, okay? An institutional investor is any person deemed by FINRA to be an institution. So understand, as you, FINRA's job is to protect, FINRA and NASA's job is to protect, to protect retail customers, grandma and grandpa. But as you get more and more sophisticated, you need less protection, so they let you do more things. So retail can't do shit. They just buy and sell, and they stay in the, in the little world because FINRA and NASA have to protect them. The next level up is like accredited. That's the one, two, three accredited or the series seven, 65 or 82. Um, one, two, three accredited is 1 million under uh, 1 million net worth, 200 salary single, 300 miserable, right? Now, they can do more things. They can buy in private placements. They can invest more in reg A's and stuff like that. That's an accredited investor. Then we go up. The next one is qualified on the state level. That's someone you can get to 1 million net, uh, 1 million in 1.1 1 .1 million invested with the advisor or 2.2 million net worth they're qualified you can do performance-based fees a qualified purchaser is someone with five million or more again the higher you go the more things you can do institutions are just what they are i mean there's definitions but it's really whatever the state says they are or finra says they are institutions are never really human beings okay they are firms that manage money you know banks hedge funds broker dealers stuff like that mutual funds since they are institutions and they can defend themselves. That's the point. Finder believes that they can defend themselves. So they have a pretty open, wide open ability to do almost not, they can't lie and cheat, but they can buy almost anything they want because they've signed a form with the broker dealer or whatever saying, hey, we can make your own decisions. We don't need you to worry about our suitability. Just give us anything you think we can make money on. And then the highest level is quibs, okay? Those are financial institutions that manage 100 million more in money. They're totally considered, they can do, they can, they can totally defend themselves. They don't need hardly any protections from FINRA or NASA. And they're allowed to buy like on 144A things. Um, that's pretty much what, they're allowed to buy things that no one else can because they don't need protection. So again, you start low and go up and the more you, the higher you, the more sophisticated you become, the less protections you need. So then they let you do more things. Okay. 
Okay, intangible versus tangible. So an intangible asset is something you can't touch, like formulas, copyrights, trademarks, like the formula for Coca-Cola, what, 7X, whatever they call it, that's an intangible asset. It's an asset, but you can't actually touch it. Tangible is like trains, buildings, desks, computers, trucks, planes, stuff like that, things you can touch. Intangible are things you can't touch, okay? Interact. So let's talk about communication. So there's, if you make posts, like social media, so if you post something that cannot be changed, it cannot be changed by someone else, that's called static, and it needs to be pre-approved all the time. That's like a post, okay? If you have interactive, interactive can be changed by someone, like a chat room or something like that. That does not need to be pre-approved. It's like a public appearance. So static needs to be pre-approved. That's the word you need. Or you see, it can't be changed. And interactive means it can be changed or added to or something like that. And that's like a chat room or like maybe even like the comment sections. Those do not need to be pre-approved. They have to be reviewed after the fact. What's interest? Okay. Interest. Interest is when you buy, when you borrow, when you lend money, right? So, okay. <clears throat> What's interest? Interest is... What my family doesn't have in me. No. Interest is when you lend money or borrow money, right? You lend money or borrow it. The the lender gets, receives the interest payments, okay? Those are payments basically for borrowing money. as opposed, And those are legally required as opposed to dividends, which are just comp – so if I, you buy a bond, you're going to get interest from the company legally. If you buy stock or preferred, you're going to get dividends maybe, but they're not legally required. Interest is legally required. What's interest rate risk? Interest rate risk is the risk that if you buy a fixed income, like a 5% bond, you're getting 50 bucks every year, right? And interest rates are up to 7 or 8%. Now, those new bonds being issued are paying 7 or 80 bucks a year. You're still only getting your 50 because it doesn't change unless it's a VRDO. Coupon never changes. Remember that pretty much. So you're still getting 50. Your bond is now worth less because it's not as attractive. That's interest rate risk. And remember, long and low, baby, long and low. Long-term bonds move more than short-term bonds. Low coupon bonds move more than high coupon bonds. Remember, the lower the coupon, the deeper the discount, the more the bond will fluctuate. Good. Okay, interest rate options or yield-based options could be Y or I. Yield-based options are when you buy options on the actual interest rates. You're not buying on the bonds, you're buying in the rates. And usually it's T-bonds that they're doing it to, okay? So you're buying, you're buying options on the yield. So if the yields go up, if you think the yields are going to go up, you buy a call. If you think yields are going down, you buy a put, okay? You think the yields are going up, you buy a call. You think the yields are going down, you buy a put. And you can actually, if you own a bond portfolio or preferred or any fixed income portfolio, you remember, you're worried about interest rate risk, so you'd buy yield-based calls. So as the rates go up, you'll make money on the calls to offset what you lose on the bonds, if you remember from before the interest rate risk. International fund. So I think I did this already. An international fund is purely a fund of just non-U.S. securities, where a global fund is U.S. and foreign securities. Internal rate of return, okay? That's the rate of return where future value becomes present value. It's a rate of return that you, it's really think of it this way. It's the rate that we use for DCF to get to present value. I have all videos on this shit, okay? So if we have future value, we want to discount the value of that future value to get present value. That rate of return is called the internal rate of return. That's the discount rate we do. And we'd love to earn more than that because that means we have a positive NPV. Okay, interstate offering and intra. They're separated, but I'm going to do them together. Interstate offering means more than one state. Inter, like inter-squad scrimmage, which means different places. Intra is one state. Interstate 
means you're subject to SEC because you're crossing state lines. Intrastate is that qualification. It's in one state. Or on the Series 7, that would be a Rule 147. And the SEC doesn't really have jurisdiction other than fraud. Interpositioning. Interpositioning is when you get an order and you're a broker-dealer and you add another broker-dealer or party into the into the mix for no good freaking reason, okay? Like if I can do a trade and then I add in Joe's broker-dealer just to execute it, there's no reason for that, okay? So the only time you can do that if it's better for the customer. Like the only time I think of that is like when you trade bonds, right? So if you're a bond trader and you're a firm, you have to have relationships with the other side because there's counterparty risk. Counterparty risk is a risk that the person on the other side of the trade just fucking disappears. Okay. That's the risk. So everyone, whenever you have a, a whenever you set up a, a bond shop and you're going to trade with them, you actually have to have a relationship with the other person. So you almost set them up as a customer. You do due diligence and all that. So you want to do that. So maybe I get an order from a customer from a bond that's not very well known. And the only people that make a market in it is this broker dealer that I don't have a relationship with. But I go, oh, wait, one of them that I do does have a relationship. So I will send the order to my friend and then they will do the trade and come back. That's okay because your comp your your firm can't get, it, get the bond even if they wanted to. Or if that other company could get a discount, like a cheaper rate or a cheaper price, then that works. So the only time you can add a third party in there is if it's better, not equal, better for the customer. If they don't, it's interpositioning. It's a violation. Intestate, not inter. Okay, interstate, okay? Interstate means that means you died without a will. So if somebody dies interstate, that means they died without a will and then probate comes in and just rips you off. I mean, manages it, makes sure that it gets sent to the right place and pisses everyone off. Okay. That's intestate. I-N-T-E-S-T-A-T. -E okay. In the money. In the money. I'm in. We're in the money. We're in the money. In the money is um, if you have an option, whether it's exercisable. So if you have a call, say you have a 50 call. If the market price, it doesn't matter buy or sell. Remember that. If you have a 50 call, any market price above 50 is in the money. Anything below 50 is out of the money. 50 is at the money, okay? And on a put, anything below. So if you have a 50 put, buy or sell, doesn't matter. Anything below 50 is in the money. At 50 is at the money. And above 50 is out of the money. In the money means it, it is exercisable. Doesn't mean profit. It has nothing to do with your profit or yield, profit or um, return or anything, or loss. It is strictly about whether it's exercisable or not. And in the money intrinsic literally mean the same thing, Okay. In the money and in, so if something's three, so if you have a 50 call and the stock's trading at 53, that's $3 in the money or $3 of intrinsic. If the, if you have 50, if they have a 50 call and the stock's trading at 47, if zero intrinsic, zero in the money. They are pretty much interchangeable. When I say pretty much, it's just because I don't really say definite because they are fucking the same thing. Okay. Inverted yield curve. Okay. So an inverted yield curve is we have a normal yield curve. Let's talk about it. Let's do it. Let's have some fun. Okay, so interest rates are going up and down. I know that's awful. Don't worry about it. And then to the right, these are the years. Okay, this is the number of years. Okay, now if you have a bond that's really short, short term, it's going to have a very low rate. Let me clean this up. Now, if you have an, so this is a normal yield curve. The longer you borrow something for, the more it's going to cost you, right? So that's the goal here. The longer you borrow something for, the more it's going to cost you. So that's a normal yield curve. Now, if the Fed starts raising rates, the lower rate, the shorter rates move more, rates move more, and then boom, okay. 
they start raising the rates. Like now we have an inverted yield curve, which is kind of weird, right? That's an inverted yield curve. And that means the yield, the short-term yields are higher than the long-term yields. Usually it's a sign of recession, blah, 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 blah. So it's an inverted yield curve because it's not normal. Okay, we're allowed to say that, right? So it's not the normal thing. So a normal yield curve is this, and an inverted is that. Good. Okay, so what's an investor and advisor? An investor and advisor is a firm. Remember, it's a firm that gives advice on securities for a fee, ABC. Advice, business for compensation. They're either federally covered and registered with the SEC, or they're state registered under 100 million, they're going to register with the states only. Okay, so investment advisor is always a firm, never an individual. As far as you know, there are instances, but let's leave that alone. For it's investment advisor is a firm that gives advice as a business for as a business for compensation, and they rather register either the SEC or the state, never both. The investment advisors act of 1940 covers federal covered advisors. It defines and spells out the rules for advisors that are registered with the SEC. Come on, wake up. You bored yet? Don't be bored. We got this. We're, well, we're not even halfway through, but we're going to get there. We're getting close to half. We're going to get there. Let's go. And don't forget to please like, subscribe, and share this shit to people who you think it'll help. Let's go. Then there's the Investment Company Act of 1940, which handles mutual funds and UITs and face amount certificates. So remember, FUM, F-U-M, face amount certificates, unit investment trusts, management companies, F-U-M. Based on certificates, unit investment trusts, management companies. They're covered by the Investment Company Act of 1940. Investment banker. What's an investment banker? An investment banker is a, I guess they, they're a, I guess you could say they're a firm, right? They basically, oh my God, there it is. And what's an investment banker? They assist corporations and issuers in trying to raise money by issuing securities and bonds and stocks. They help them, they give them advice and tell them how to do it. So an investment banker is a person, if you want to say that firm, technically, if you work for them, you're an investment banker, but it's a firm, I guess it's a type of broker dealer. I'm not saying guess for some reason. It's a firm that assists a corporation in going public, raising money, selling shares to the public, selling bonds, whatever it is. They give them advice and tell them how to work through it. Investment counsel. Investment counsel is basically, God fucking damn it. Investment counsel is an advisor that's principal business is giving advice, investment advice, okay? And investment supervisory services. So an investment council, it can't just be one of the businesses they do. It has to be the primary business. Giving investment advice has to be their primary business. Investment constraints, okay? Investment constraints are limits or restrictions that a customer puts on the advisor that they want. They either liquidity needs, time horizon, Basically, that maybe they want ESG. Those are investment constraints or limits on what the advisor can pick. They're telling the they're telling the advisor what you cannot do. We want liquidity. We want you know we need it in two years. We want ESG. We you know ethical investing stuff like that. An investment grade security is a security that has a credit rating of triple B or higher. Triple B, A, double A, A, all that is considered investment grade. Anything below triple B is speculative junk or high yield. An investment objective is the goal, is what we want. We want growth, capital, we want growth, income, capital reservation. Really, by the way, with suitability, it's kind of everything. It's either growth, 
income or capital reservation. There's variances that, but really that's what people want. Either growth, income, or capital preservation, safety. That's really everything it is. Again, there's differences in there, but it's all under those three umbrellas. An IRA rollover is like when you get a uh, 401k lump sum or some other retirement plan and you roll it into your IRA within 60 days. You have to do it within 60 days. And if you do that, there's no there's no um, tax consequences. Okay. That as opposed to an IRA transfer where you say you have an IRA with Schwab and you want to move it to UBS, that's a transfer. There's, it's basically you never touch the money, right? Because an IRA rollover, you may get the check and have to redeposit it. There's issues with that. But the point is you're touching the money. On an IRA transfer, you never actually touch the money. It's just, hey, JP Morgan, send it to UBS. We're good to go. There's no time limit. No worry about that. Okay. Issuer or issuer. Okay. An issuer is a firm or organization that's issuing or proposing to issue a security. Okay. That, if, if, that would be like Tesla, the government, a municipality like New York City, or anyone issuing. If I went public, if I issued shares or bonds or anything to raise money, I'm an issuer. And the issue is what I send. Okay. The issue is me actually issuing the shares. And issued shares are the basically how much. So never, an issuer is someone, a firm that that either proposes or does issue any kind of security, whether it's a bond, preferred, common stock, whatever. That's an issuer. They either do it or propose to issue it. The act of issuing is issuing the shares, and then issued shares are the amount we've actually issued. So we've authorized. Say we authorize a million shares. We actually issue five hundred thousand. That's issued. If we buy back 100,000, that's treasury, and that would leave us with 400,000 outstanding. Outstanding shares is what we have left out there in trading. So outstanding is issued shares minus a treasury stock equals outstanding. But remember, even treasury stock has been issued. It's just been bought back. Okay. Two types of trust. There's a lot, but let's go over the. There's revocable and irrevocable. Irrevocable means it cannot be altered. Once you set it up, the grantor cannot change it or alter it unless the beneficiary says okay. But for the most part, it's it's irrevocable, it's untouchable, unchangeable. You can't get your money back. And this way, if you die or whatever, or it's not part of your, that money is not part of your estate. It's not taxable to you anymore. But again, you have no control over it. Revocable means you can put it in and then take it back and change it whenever you want. J, baby, J, okay. Joint account. A joint account, we talked about it, is when there's more than one person. We did talk about this. A joint account is more is more than one person. And they remember, they have to be individuals. They can't be uh, corporations. You can't have two part. Remember, partnership account is for a limited partnership. It's not for a, it's not two people, okay? A joint with rights of survivorship, okay? Joint with rights of survivorship means we have an account. If I die, it goes to you. If you die, the money goes to me. Joint tenants in common means if I die, the money goes to my estate, my beneficiary, my heirs. And if you die, your money goes to your estate, your beneficiaries, your heirs. And remember, joint tenants in common is possibly subject to uh, probate. Now, junk bonds are high-yield bonds, speculative. We kind of just talked about them. Hey, letter K. CJ was quick. Letter K. Keo, Keo plan called an HR10 is for self-employed individuals okay it's it's a corporate plan that's set up by a self-employed now you can have employees so if i'm self-employed i may have a couple of employees but here's the deal with the key if i set one up for myself 
I must set it up for them. If I contribute a percentage for myself, I have to give them the same percentage of their salary that I did of my salary. Keynesian, okay, Keynesian, I'm not a fan of this, is basically John Mader Keynes set it up and it's saying the only entity that's large enough to, to help the economy out of a problem is the government, okay? The government and what they do is they, they spend money and they do projects and stuff like that. The government spending and lowers taxing, okay? So that's how they believe that they can stabilize the market. They, and basically every country does it now. Um, where they the government controls the spending and controls the economy to prevent it from going shitty, okay? KYC, know your customer rule. That's a rule that requires broker-dealers to get certain information on each of its customers so you know what's going on, so that you know what is going on. Okay, we're on to the L's, and this could be a big one. L, give me an L. Okay. So let's start with last in, first out, as opposed to first in, first out. Okay. So first in, first out, FIFO, is when you sell shares. Say you buy a bunch of shares. Eh, let's do it. Okay. Okay. So let's say we have three things here. We bought stock in June at 30, and then July at 35, and then August at 37. Stock's moving up. That's awesome. And then it doesn't matter when, but I sell I only sell 100. If I sell everything, we're fine. But if I only sell 100, I'm going to do FIFO. And I probably talked about it already, but we get to see it again. Um, if I don't, if I choose a method, what I should do is choose these shares. Then I'm going to sell shares. I'm going to sell these. So I only pay taxes on $3, which is awesome. That's normal. Select a share. I choose my shares. If I don't choose a method, they're automatically going to go to FIFO, which is first in, first out, which is these, okay? So that means that if I don't choose a method, they're going to choose that. So I would have to pay taxes on $10 versus my $3. So that's where FIFO comes in. If you don't choose a method, they do that. Now, if I have a non-qualified retirement account, they do it a little different. They do LIFO automatically, and I can't change that. So I put in 20K. In a non-qualified account, and it goes to 100K, right? That We're good with that. That's just the way it goes. My shit goes down, but let's pretend it went up. Now, you put it in after tax, so you pay taxes on this 20, and now it's at 100. So this $80,000, okay, this $80,000 is taxable when you withdraw it. So when you take the money out of your retirement account, when you take your money out of the retirement account, it's going to start here and go backwards, LIFO. So all the growth is going to be taxed first. So if you take out 90,000, the first 80 is going to be taxed and the last 10 is not going to be taxed. It's going to be return of principal. So that's what the retirement accounts do. Non-qualified retirement accounts do LIFO where you're taking the last shit out and then you're going backwards. There you go. Okay, leaps. Leaps are just long-term options, right? Long-term equity anticipation products, but um, securities really, but it's... They're just options that are up to 36 to 39 months. And the good thing about them is there's a lot of time value and you're going to pay a lot for them. But if you buy them and they're over nine months, you only have to put down 75%. Like you can do it in a margin account. Normally with options, you have to pay 100% for everything, right? So on leaps, if it's more than nine months, you only have to put down 75%. But once it gets within nine months, you have to put down the balance. Good. A legal opinion. Okay, so what's a legal opinion? A legal opinion is what bond counsel does before you issue a revenue bond and maybe some GOs, seen it on the bond buyer, um, where they're looking at the lawyer, the bond counsel is looking at the legality of it. Like, is it tax-free? Are there any liens on the property that they're doing? Who owes the money for it? Is the insurance valid? Are the signatures good? All the legal stuff. What they don't look at is whether it's suitable 
or the or the credit ratings or any of that stuff. They don't look at whether it's going to make money, whether it's suitable or any of that. They're looking at the legal stuff, okay? And we want an unqualified legal opinion. That means we have no issues, okay? Hey, look at that. It almost matches, right? Um, it's supposed to. It's the same shit. Um, a legal opinion, unqualified legal opinion means there's no issues. A qualified legal opinion, which is what we don't want, that means there's an issue. Either it's subject to AMT or it's going to be taxable somehow or there's a problem with the property. Anything qualified just means there's some issues that we have to kind of fix. Legislative risk. Legislative risk is not the same as regulatory risk. We'll get to regulatory risk. Legislative risk is that your security or whatever you have, your security will be affected by tax laws or changes in the laws. That's legislative risk. Lots of limited partnerships have a lot of that because they're worried about the tax law changing. Letter of intent. A letter of intent is for when you open by a mutual fund and you go, look, the break points are 20 grand, but I only have like nine now. But I think I'll get the other 10. Maybe grandma's on her sick bed. You know, you're getting the money from her. Okay, whatever. Um, don't want to be that mean, but, but it is what it is. Um, if you think in the next 13 months that you're going to get money to cover it, to get to the break point, you can fill out a letter of intent. And really, even if you don't think you're going to get it, do it because it's not binding. If you fill out a letter of intent, it's good for 13 months. You can backdate it 90, but then it only goes forward 10 months. It gives you the ability to get the lower break point. So let's say I put in nine now and it's an 8%. It's normally going to be 8%. But if I get 20 grand in there, it's only 7%. So what I'll do is I'll fill out a letter of intent for another 11 grand and say, I'm putting in nine now. I'm going to put in another 11 over the next 13 months. And then they will give me that break point for now too. So it's awesome. And if I meet the 20 grand, I get it. If not, they do a little jiggering. So what they really do is if you buy, if you were to pay, if you pay a lower sales charge, that means you're getting more actual shares because less of it's going into the pockets of the rep and more is going into the fund. So there's extra shares that you get by paying a lower sales charge go into an escrow account and they grow like they're yours. If you meet the letter of intent, you get the shares. If you don't, they just fold them back into the company and it's like you paid the original sales charge. That's why it's no big deal. Just fill one out and do it. It's almost always suitable. Level load. A level load means they're just charging you a sales charge every year. Boom, boom, boom. I always think of C-shares. They basically just charge you a sales charge every year. It's usually small, but it's every year. Okay, so sometimes when somebody dies in an account, you have to wait for some documents. You have to wait, you know, the proof of death and all that. But one of the things you have to wait is for the letters testamentary. The letters testamentary, okay? Though that's a court doc stating who the executor is. So now you know who you can take orders from. That's all it is. Letters testamentary is just saying that that's naming the executor. Okay, leverage is just borrowing money, right? Leverage is borrowing money to increase what you're doing, like issuing bonds and using the bonds to, to increase your capital to do things. That's all it is. Using margin is leverage. Anytime you borrow money to increase your buying power or your capitalization, that's using leverage. Not, like if I'm a company and I'm issuing bonds, I'm, I'm getting levered up. Levered up, I'm using leverage. If I issue equity, I'm not. I'm just selling my company. Leverage buyout, LBO, crazy one, right? So a leverage buyout, this is crazy, is when you use bonds or assets to borrow money to buy a company. But here's the crazy one. Say I'm going to take over a company. Oh, let's do it this way. Okay, so a leverage buyout, right? It's a very simple. Again, it's quick and dirty. I'm not really giving it every my investment banking buddy to be pissed at me. But leverage buyout is this. Company A wants to take over company B. But company A doesn't have enough money, but they go, hey, 
wait a second, company B, the company we're taking over has 100 million in assets. So what we're going to do is we take some of our assets and some of their assets, put them together, even though we don't own the company yet, and either go to a bank or issue bonds and borrow money based on that. So I'm literally, if I'm taking over company B using a leveraged buyout, I'm literally using their assets, the fact that they have assets to get a loan to take them over. Again, I'm, I'm and, and Milken was a king of this. These were like junk bonds and stuff like that back then. Go junk then because they're paying 16%, right? But um, if you pay me 16%, you can kind of call me anything you want. So company A is taking over company B. They issue, they they say, oh, that company B has $100 million in assets. We're going to go to the bank or issue bonds or borrow money from other lenders based on that collateral. We'll use some of ours too, maybe. But again, we're, it's almost like we're using their assets to screw them over. And then we're taking them over with that. We're buying over their company. A lot of times it works, like they're working together and it's fine. But technically, you could do a hostile takeover this way. Hey, it's worth $100 million. We're gonna do. We're going to just buy you out doing it that way. I think it'd be tough to do now, but it could have been done. A liability is what we owe, right? A liability is we owe that, okay? Like a bond, we owe that money. A liability is what we owe. An asset is what we have. A liability is what we owe. Current assets are short-term. They're a year or less, okay? So like current assets are like accounts payable, wages, salaries, dividends payable, accrued taxes payable, stuff like that. And then long-term would be like mortgage, bank loans, debentures, stuff like that. So those are liabilities, what we owe. And, and the short-term stuff is called current. The long-term is usually fixed liabilities. Okay, so LIBOR is London Interbank Offered Rate. It's basically the benchmark. I always think of it as like our their version of the Fed funds. So it's basically the benchmark that a lot of major, major big companies use as their benchmark interest rate, kind of like our internal discount rate or Fed funds rate. That's what LIBOR is. So even we use LIBOR, everyone uses LIBOR as a benchmark rate. Limited liability means that you have a you have a limited amount of liability. Usually, it comes down to you can only lose what you put in, kind of thing. So, the word unlimited limited means there's limited liability. Unlimited liability means there's no limit. Like if you short stock or short a short a call, you have unlimited liability. Literally, nothing can stop you from losing money, right? But limited means there is an actual number. It's like if you buy shares of a company, you can always actually lose what you put in. Okay, LLC, limited liability company, that is a um, where you can have an unlimited number of members. It's a pass-through. It's a corporation. They have limited liability, but they can run the company, okay? But again, it passes through. The LLC doesn't actually pay taxes. The, in, the All the money conduit passes right through to the members. They get to run it. You can have different classes of members. And they and it's, a, it's like my company, my tutor company is an LLC. I used to be so prop. But I became an LLC, so I can't really be sued for stuff. Who knows? They can probably sue me anyway. And then we have, that's a limited, that's an LLC. Pretty simple and cheap to set up. Then we have a limited partnership. That's a partnership. You have to have at least one limited partner and one general partner. So remember, I bring this up all the time. If the test or anyone says partnership, they're talking about a general partnership, not a limited partnership. Okay. So a limited partnership has an LP and a GP. The GP has unlimited risk, runs the partnership. LP has limited risk, limited, and they only drop the cash and that's all they can really do. They can maybe vote the person out, but that's deeper than these exams will go. And you have to have one of each, a limited and a general. But remember, they will say limited partnership. They will, if they say partnership, they're not talking about this. They're talking about unlimited risk partnership. Okay. Okay, what's a limit order? A limit order is when you go to give 
in order to buy or sell stock and you put a price on it, buy 100 shares at 42, that means I'll buy it at 42 or lower. But that's the stuff that shows up in the inside market. If I want to sell 100 shares at 30, I'll sell it at 30 or higher. So if I buy limit, I'll buy it at that price or lower or better. That's what they say. And if I have a sell limit, I have a, it's a budget. I have a price and I'll sell it at that price or higher or better. Limited power of attorney, limited trading authorization. Limited power of attorney is you have the right. It has to be written for broker dealers. And if it's for an IA, you can have it for up to 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it can be verbal or oral for up to 10 days. And then after the 10th day, you have to get it in writing or it ends. Limited power of attorney means you can do any suitable trade, but you can't really move the money around. Full power of attorney means you can do any suitable trade. Well, I just said that. Plus, you can actually pay bills and do stuff like that. If we jump past that, they all ends at incapacitation or death, whichever comes first, right? Coma, stuff like that. But durable will go through incapacitation but will still end at death. So limited power of attorney and full can both either be regular or durable. Durable goes through incapacitation. Limit regular does not, but they all end at death. Remember, all power of attorney ends at death. And for broker dealers, must be in writing ahead of time. Liquidation is two things. One, selling your shares. Just some liquidate my account, get it out, okay? The other one is when a company goes bankrupt, they liquidate it, and what's the order? It's secured, unsecured, preferred, common. If they use taxes and wages, because different states have different rules, they're going to either show you taxes and wages or secured. They shouldn't do both because different states handle it differently. That And that's the order, okay, of liquidation. Liquidity is the ability for an investor to find a willing buyer or seller. So liquidity is the ability to buy, to find a, a person on the other side of the trade. If you want to buy stock, it's the ability to find a seller at a fair price. And if you're a seller, it's the ability to find a buyer at a fair price. Liquidity, marketability, it's the ability to get rid of it. The other end of it is liquidity is basically how much cash a, a corporation has so they can meet their expenses. Liquidity risk, okay? Liquidity risk is the risk that you will not be able to get rid of your shares at a fair price, okay? Liquidity is the ability to do it. Liquidity risk is the inability to get rid of your shares at a fair price. That would be like if you have a, a, a lower a, a lower credit rating bond or some munis or have liquidity risk. DPP or MLPs have liquidity risk. A lot of things, uh, pink sheets, uh, bulletin boards may have liquidity risk. The smaller the company the, or, or the lower quality it is, the more liquidity risk you will have. Okay, listed stock and listed options means they're trading on an exchange. That's it. On an, listed means on an exchange. Unlisted means not on an exchange. A living trust is a trust created during the lifetime of the grantor. So if I create a trust right now, that's a living trust. It's also known as an inter vivos while I'm alive. Latin for that, okay? Load means sales charge. So class A shares, a front end load means sales charge. Remember, load means sales charge. Loan consent. Loan consent is part of the margin agreement. It's one of the ones that don't have to be signed. You're allowing your, it's not fit to borrow the money. It's part of a margin agreement and it's allowing your shares to be lent to, to other people so they can short stock. You can say no to that or you can even try to get paid for it if you want. Loan value is the maximum amount of money that you can borrow against a position. So Reg T says it's 50% on stocks and zero on, on options. Okay. Long means you own it. 
long, own, hold, buy, mean, if you buy, own, hold, long, all mean you own it. I'm long the stock, I own it. Okay, I'm long the option, I own it. A long-term gain or a long-term loss is when it happens for more than 12 months. So a long-term gain is when it's more than 12 months and a long-term loss is when it's long, um, longer than 12 months. Carry Loss, carry over, carry forward, loss, carry, whatever you want to call it. It's like if you have a loss of five grand, we know you can use three grand as earned income, ordinary income, and then you carry forward the rest. That's a loss, carry forward. A long coupon. Okay. So usually when a bond is issued for the first time, we know that bonds are every six months, right? So we know that bonds are every six months. Okay. So what happens is when they first issue it, say we have the data date, say it's a January and July bond. And then the data date is like February, March. Well, they don't want to pay a four month coupon. So what they'll do is they'll make the first payment next January. So it'll almost be a nine, a eight or nine month coupon. So it's a long coupon means the first, it's only on the first one. And when it's longer than six months, they only do that to keep everything going. A long straddle is when you buy a call and buy a put at the same time. You buy them both. You're looking for volatility, unlimited gain, limited loss. And since I'm here, I'll talk about a short straddle is when you sell a call and sell a put, you're looking for income. You can only make the premium. You're hoping nothing happens. Short straddle stability, long straddle, you want volatility, okay? Always remember, straddles are the only things with two break-evens. They have an upper break-even and a lower, okay? Long-term liabilities, that's liabilities that are longer, like um, circular definition, that's over 12 months. So like, a, um, like bonds or a bank loan or a mortgage or something like that. Loose credit, ooh, loose, loose. Never mind, I'm just kidding. Easy, wow, I just, I'm really just laying them up there. Easy money, loose credit. That's when the Federal Reserve is loosening the economy. That's when they're buying treasuries and lowering the uh, discount rate. L shares, okay. So L share variable annuities, okay. L shares in a variable annuity is a type of annuity where there's a short surrender period. So let's talk about surrender period. If you put money into an annuity and you're going to do a contract plan where you put it in over time or um, you're basically just putting money in and you're going to hold it for 20 or 30 years, that's fine. If you take it out early, they may charge you a surrender charge, okay, or a period on top of the taxes and all that. But L shares may have a shorter one. Like maybe it's only 10 years instead of 20 years. I don't know what it is and nobody cares what the numbers are. But L share annuities are that the period where you pay a penalty is a shorter amount of time. Okay, I think that's a good place to end it. I'm not going to do M. M's a big one. I'm going to start the next one in M. That's literally like half the alphabet. And I think I'm at five or six hours. It's crazy. Crazy. Who'd have thought the alphabet would take me? Oh, right. Happy day.